0: James chapter 1 verse 9, if you want to go ahead and flip there, um, if you don't have a Bible, now is your time to steal one. You have my permission. Uh, they're in the back of the room if you want, otherwise we have scripture up on the on the screen. But guys, glad, glad y'all are here, glad you're sharing your Sunday morning with us. Um, we still have hot coffee in the back, there's water over there, um, so help yourself. My name is Nathan, I'm a pastor uh, on staff at Christ Chapel College, and we're about to get into it. Um, but before we do, I need to call something to attention. Um, when I was in college, I went to TCU. Uh, when I was in college, sorority t-shirts, date party tees were like the ultimate status symbol for any guy at, at TCU in college, right? If you were a guy in college at TCU, I, and most universities were like this. It was like a fad, and it kind of still is, but more so I think back then, way back in the day. Obviously, I'm not that much older than you, but... Your goal as a guy was to get as a drawer full and a closet full as a, of as many sorority t-shirts as you could, right? So, um, it was like the ultimate status symbol. Um, they were like, you were the man if you had a ton of them. The more you had, the better. But now, if you guys looked at me and I walked up on this stage and I'm rocking a Theta t-shirt, you would massively judge me, right? And if I had a tri-delt date party tea, you'd be like, what in the world? This guy needs to get a life as a 27-year-old, right? That, it is no longer cool for me to rock a comfort color tea that has uh, Greek letters on it. You would think it was really sad and you would think it was really, really weird. Um, And think about it, stuff like that, like that gave you status and gave me status and that I took pride in at a certain point in time now uh, communicates the exact opposite, right? It has... Uh, a cringy tone to it, it kind of had an expiration date. Me wearing uh, a sorority t-shirt on stage in my late 20s is like you wearing your high school letterman or your homecoming crown to college, right? Like you just don't do that. It's weird and people would would judge you. Um, Things that used to be cool aren't quite cool anymore. Things are cool until they aren't. Things are worth bragging about until they aren't. And that's the reality with most things like status. Um, most things that we typically take pride in, they have an expiration date. Um, Everything that we typically take pride in is eventually going to fade away and never lasts. Status never lasts, has an expiration date. Wealth ultimately never, never lasts. Sorority t-shirts will only last in the sense that your kids might rock them as like some retro cool gear one day, but that's about about it, right? Um, So if we're going to place our pride in something and take pride in something, then it better be in something that lasts. Um, but if things like status uh, with our friends and our family and our community or whatever, our peers, if that won't ever last, if wealth won't ever last or anything like those things, um, anything you can think of, if those things don't last, then, then what does? Um, what is actually worth boasting in? What is something that we can take pride in and boast about that will actually last? That's that's the question that we're going to tackle today. That's what I think James 1, or what I believe James 1, 9 through 11, actually has a really good answer for. Um, and we're going to unpack these three little verses, 9, 10, and 11, James chapter 1, just little by little, and hopefully walk out of here um, today with a very clear understanding of what James is saying and then what, what to do with it. So, um, just for a little bit of context, if this is your— your first time joining us, or you're just dropping in this Sunday, or you're tuning into our podcast, or whatever. Um, here's here's where we've been so far. We, uh, we, as a college ministry, this semester are walking through the book of James. In, in May, we're going to be done, um, and that's what we're doing for the spring semester. Here's, here's where we've been so far. So far, we've looked at who James is and who he was writing to, very important. Uh, then we looked at a new way to frame. Life's difficult circumstances, the trials set before us, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and then last week, Ben was up here and we talked about how to find and grow in wisdom. Um, and this week, picking up in verse nine, in light of what James has to say about trials and wisdom and all that kind of stuff, we're looking about um, or looking at how to put what we've learned into into practice. Um, you see, James is an extremely uh, practical practical book. It's all about your faith being expressed in practice. I'll explain this in a second. Um, or what he calls works, right? He says faith um, should be expressed in works or expressed in action. Um, some people even have called it like the, the Proverbs of the New Testament, which Proverbs is a wisdom book, has a lot of practical wisdom, because this book is filled with a lot of very practical wisdom for the moment-by-moment everyday life of uh, the Christian, of a follower of Jesus. Um, and because I want us to come away with feeling like we know what the book of James is all about in May at the end of the semester. If you stick with us, I want you to be able to say, I know what the book of James is. I know what it means for me. I know all about it. I want us to start looking at how the letter flows. I want to start introducing you to a couple things um, like this so we can hopefully see how it all works together as one coherent piece. So it's already up here. Um, Let's recap where we've been so far on the on the left side of this. You'll see Verses 2 through 4, we talked about this idea of trials and testing and being steadfast. And then immediately, we went into this little nugget on wisdom, which was last week. And then today, starting in verse 9 through 11, we're talking about putting it all into practice. And then what's going to happen is next Sunday, Asher Fraley, who just did the welcome, is going to preach a sermon starting in verse 12 uh, through 18. And you're going to see this cycle repeat itself. You're going to see this theme of trials, testing, and steadfastness all over again. And then you're going to see in verse 19, it pick up on this idea of like, all right, here's a little wisdom nug for you. Here you go. You're welcome. Really practical. And then Ben's going to get up here and close out chapter one, talking about how to put it into practice. And there's going to be more specific examples uh, at the end of the chapter. And then what you're going to notice is the book of James, chapter two, three, four, and 5. There's only five chapters. All of those are just going to be talking about these three things over and over again in more depth. They're going to expand on it more. James is really getting— getting really practical with us, and so this is the kind of themes, themes that I want you to look for in the book of James. Um, I hope that's helpful for you. I really want you to come away knowing what the book of James is about and connecting dots and not just letting this be another sermon um, that seems unrelated to the rest of the book. So with that said, let's go ahead and jump in. We ready? Verse, uh, verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. We'll throw it up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. James says this. He says, let the lowly brother— Boast in his exaltation, and the rich, the rich brother, in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. And so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Um, Seems a little, little cheery. Get to talk about grass and flowers today. Strap in. Um, let's, uh, let's unpack this. So little by little, um, I love starting with understanding a passage by understanding definitions of words, even if they seem kind of obvious. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to just walk through it piece by piece. So note takers, get ready, click away. Um, first word I want you to pay attention to is the word boast. Look at that word. Um, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich or the prideful is another way to think about it, which we'll talk about in a second, boast in his humiliation, what does that word boast mean? Typically, we think of boasting as like bragging, right? It's kind of a turn-off kind of thing. Um, people are like boasting and how great they are, something that they did, um, that kind of stuff. Looking at the original language always helps us get a clear definition. Boasting, the way James is using it, uh, and in the original language, it translates to rejoice. That's another way to think about it. So when you see the word boast, I want you to think of the word rejoice um it's used in a few other places in the new testament and all of them uh like in romans 5 uh, 1 corinthians there's a couple other places each time this word is used it's used in reference to rejoicing and placing your confidence in god or his spirit or the work of christ rather than oneself um which i think is an incredible observation which we'll touch on in a second The other reason I I want to highlight that word boast and how it looks like rejoice is, again, I want us to start connecting dots in the book of James. Remember, verses 2 through 4, talking about trials and testing and steadfastness, that whole passage is about saying rejoice when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy, pure joy, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's like he's starting to connect themes and dots for us. He's saying if you're in an uh, um, unfortunate circumstance, the lowly brother which we'll unpack here in a second. Uh, Consider it joy. Rejoice in that. Uh, rejo- rejoice in your, your exaltation. Um, very similar there. But let's keep, keep moving along. Let's look at the words exaltation and humiliation. Um, so you can circle those. You can do whatever you want. I'm going to throw a screen up here if you want to copy this note down. Um, exaltation. Again, looking at the original word, which I think is important. Exaltation literally translates to height or a high place or a high position. And then you see humiliation, the exact opposite. Uh, It translates to uh, lowliness, like being lowly. You're humiliated, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's a low place or a low position. So with that in mind, look at who is being told to do what, right? He says the lowly brother boasts in his high position. And the high brother, the prideful one, boasts in his low position. You see this kind of profound reversal. It doesn't make sense. You would almost think logically the lowly brother should boast in his lowliness and the other guy should boast in his high position, right? Like he's, he's earned it. But James is saying do the opposite. It's this really profound reversal. Um, and contextually speaking, he's talking about rich and poor uh, Jewish Christians here. So he's saying the, writ, or the poor guy who's in unfortunate circumstances like, remember and rejoice in what you're going to become, which you're uh, going to keep unpacking. And then the prideful who's kind of got life, life looks pretty good, rejoice in h- your humiliation. Remember your low position. Um, so before we unpack that though, I want to w- unpack just one, one more quick word. Um, I-, I want you to pay attention to the word brother in this. Uh, the lowly brother boasts in his humiliation and then the rich uh, insinuating the rich brother boasts in his humiliation that word brother, strategically used by James, um, because he's writing to Jewish believers, to Christians, um, that word brother refers to anyone in Christ. So a follower of Jesus, uh, a Christian, therefore anyone in God's family, right? They, um, We see in Romans 8, uh, we saw last semester when we went through the book of Galatians, Galatians 4, um, that if we are children of God, then we are heirs, we are co-heirs with Christ, fellow heirs with Christ, and in the family of God. So brothers and sisters with Christ, sons and daughters of the God of the universe. Very profound. We'll keep talking about it. But in other words, the lowly brother, follower of Jesus, uh, the believer, ought to take pride in the high position. The other brother take pride in his low position. Um, but what exactly are those positions, positions? What's the high position? What's the low position? Um, I'm going to take us to Ephesians chapter 2. So if you have your Bible and you want to flip there, you can go for it. Otherwise, it's up here. Um, but I think this is going to help, uh, help us figure it out. And I think it's fascinating how this all, all ties together. Uh, Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature... Children of wrath. That sounds amazing, uh, just like the rest of mankind. Here's the switch. Verse 4 But God, being rich in mercy, with the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him, and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That is the high position right there. You've been made alive with Christ. You're now united with him, and you are now seated with him in the heavenly places. That is the high position that uh, James is referring to. Again, you are called a co-heir with Christ. You are in the family of God, and more than that, uh, if you're in the family of God, you have the Spirit of God living in you, and he's working in you to be continually formed into the image of Jesus. And what James is saying here Your high position is that of being co-heirs with Christ in the family of God. Um, He's saying rejoice in that. Rejoice that you are called. Your identity is that of a family member of the God of the universe. Like think about how profound that is. Rejoice in that and rejoice in your refining. You're being formed into the image of Jesus. Rejoice in those things. Boast in those things. And then Ephesians 2 finishes off and it highlights the low position that we're in. Picking up in verse uh, verse 8 says this, um, throw it up there, verse 8, keep switching down, yeah, one second, technical difficulties, I can flip to it too, there we go, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is reminding us of our low position. There is nothing that we did to earn this grace or this salvation. It's not by our own doing so that we can't boast in it, so that we can't rejoice in that. What we rejoice in and what we boast in is that it is a gift of God. His salvation is by grace. You were a sinner, and he loved you despite that, despite the fact that you— Um, or separated from him. He just said, I love you enough to give myself up for you, and that's not because you did anything to earn it or deserve it. It's just a free gift, and he's telling the prideful, the rich brother, to boast in that. Remember who you are. Um, Humility, as I like to define it, is all about having a proper view of yourself. Having a proper view of yourself in light of who God is and the work that he's He's done for you. And that's what Ephesians is doing. It's making us perfectly clear of that. It's saying you were were a sinner. You were dead because of that sin. You're broken and you're flawed. Rejoice in in this grace. So, in short, boasting in your humiliation looks like understanding and recognizing that my sin is so bad and such a problem that Christ, that Jesus had to die for me. That was the payment for it. Death is the payment for sin and someone had to die that death and Jesus died that death for you. He had to do it because your sin is that much of a problem. Boasting in your exaltation looks like recognizing and, and living in the reality that Jesus loved me so much that he wanted to die for me despite my sin. He wanted to take my place on on the cross and now I'm in his family. Now I'm called brother. Now I'm called sister and son and daughter by the God of the universe. That's kind of what that looks like and what James is talking about here. Um, Hope that sinks in for you just for a moment. Um, But kind of moving on, I, uh, I can understand that at this point, I get it, you come to church at 11 o'clock on a Sunday because that's what you grew up doing or because what you think you should do or whatever, and you're probably listening to me, and I think this is all valid, by the way, and I've, I've been here. Um, I think this is all extremely valid. You're hearing me talk about rejoice in your status as a son and a daughter of the God of the universe, and that doesn't seem very, um, like, tangible, right? You're like, what does that even mean? Like, I'm finding plenty of joy in so many so many other things, um, We'll just call them the things of the world, kind of like Ephesians did. Um, life might look pretty, pretty good for you. You've probably got the girl, probably got the guy, the sorority T-shirt, maybe. I don't know. Um, you're not wearing your high school Letterman jacket, like things are looking up and life is fun. Um, that in mind, if that's you, I want you to look at the the illustration he uses. This is where we're going to get into the grass and the flower. Um, let me read it again. He says, "Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises." with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty and perishes. And so also will the rich man in the midst of his pursuits. James is uh, kind of directly quoting a passage from Isaiah 40. Uh, You can go check it out later. Verses six through eight. Um, It's almost word for word. But in Isaiah, Isaiah ends it with saying, the flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of God stands forever. And so right there, I just am highlighting that because that's already a little application point for you. If you want to have an eternal perspective, get in the word of God, which stands forever. Um, but I also read, read this, and I can't help but think of this book uh, in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. You might be familiar with it, you might not, um, but Ecclesiastes is uh, this book written by a guy named Solomon. And Solomon is famously known as the wisest man in the world at the time, and he's also the richest man in the world at the time, and he's the greatest king that Israel had ever seen up until this point, especially as far as wealth went, material possessions, the things he built, uh, stuff like that. Like, he is, is the guy, and he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, essentially just to save us the pain and the turmoil of chasing after things like wealth and status and what he calls everything under the sun, because it never satisfies and it all fades away in the end. And then chapter two of his book, you should go and go and read Ecclesiastes this afternoon if you have time. Chapter two of his book, he goes on an entire spill talking about how um, he, he literally says no amount of money, no amount of sex, no amount of success or achievement, no amount of alcohol, no amount of pleasure, um, none of that provided me any good. Nothing that I built, none of that provided any lasting satisfaction for me. He says it was all fleeting. That's a word that comes up a lot. It was all worthless in the end. He literally says he found it all to be meaningless. That's the word that he uses over and over again. It is all meaningless, and he equates it to a vapor in the wind, which you can never really think of a vapor in the wind. You can never really get your hands around vapor or mist, right? You think you can kind of do it, and then it just dissipates, and it fades away in the end. Um, And just think about that. Think about vapor and mist, which is what he writes about in Ecclesiastes. How many of the things in your life feel like vapor and mist? Take a moment to honestly just examine your life. How many of the things that you chase after feel like vapor and mist? You can never quite get your hand around it. It just seems to always be fleeing from you. And when you think you've got it, you don't. In my my experience, there's so many things in this world that that feel like that. Um, going back to my time in college, just to tell you my experience, and maybe you'll relate to it, maybe you won't. Um, my experience was marked by chasing after all of that kind of stuff. Um, if I want it, I can get it. Right? That's kind of the mentality that I had. I'm gonna do something that fills me up and fills up my tank. Um, a lot of that looked up like uh, looked like hookup culture, right? I longed for this deep sense of connection with people, and I found it in hookup culture. It was like, if I can just uh, prove myself in this way, and if I can have that kind of moment with someone or whatever it might be, then maybe I'll satisfy whatever's going on in here. And here's what I found. Every single time, every single time I left whatever situation that was, I felt just a little more empty, or I just wanted just a little bit more. It never quite satisfied me it was like I almost got my hands around it and it felt good and it was fun or whatever. I almost had my hands around it and then before you know it, it dissipated and I found myself craving just a little bit more and feeling a little, little more empty. Um, this all goes to say, and I just want you to think about that, what those things are in your own life. Um, I'm only highlighting this just to help us come to grips with the reality that we typically spend all of our time, all of our energy chasing after things that won't last. Uh, chasing after things, uh, we preoccupy ourselves with those things that won't ever truly satisfy our souls. And I would argue actually leave our souls feeling empty, um, robbing us of our joy, robbing us of life. I can't help think of John 10, 10, which you hear us talk about a lot, how the thief, the enemy, the world all comes to kill, steal, and destroy, rob you of life. Um, but here's, uh, here's the thing. in in all of this. I know that got a little heavy. I want to make a quick little sidebar here. Um, Here's what I'm not saying and what I I don't want you to hear and how I don't want you uh, to interpret this this text, these three verses. Um, What I don't want you to hear me say is that um, specifically rich is bad and uh, and poor is better, right? Um, Especially in a passage like this where he's really contrasting the two here. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you making money, there's nothing wrong with being successful in life. There's nothing wrong with getting a, um, an incredibly well-paying job with a fat paycheck and getting the nice car and working at like Deloitte or Goldman Sachs, KPMG, whatever the, the thing is for you. Nothing wrong with that. What I'm saying is that that thing just shouldn't be the source of your joy and your hope um, because it'll ultimately ultimately fail you. And your source of joy and your hope shouldn't be in things like those fleeting pleasures or whatever it might be, because they will ultimately fail you. Um, here, here's why I think they're going to fail you. Even even the good things, even the flowers, the beautiful things. Here's, here's why they're going to fail you. You can't take these things with you. None of those things are, are eternal. They're very temporary. They're fleeting. You, however, are an eternal being you are going to live forever. And you're either going to live forever in a relationship with God or you're going to live forever separated from him. But regardless, you can't take anything here with you into eternity. Um, Ecclesiastes, after chapter two, when when Solomon goes on that kind of rant, chapter three, he literally says, eternity has been written on a man's heart. I'm an eternal being. I've, ma- I've been made for eternal things. The God of the universe put eternal things on my heart. Um, to kind of help highlight it, there's a, a C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis is a good dude um, that I'm, I'm going to read for you, and hopefully it helps th- this idea kind of sink in a little more. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, <clears throat> uh, well, this is a guy named Jim Branch, and he's quoting C.S. Lewis just to be clear. Here's what it says. Our souls long to be filled. They long to be loved, and they long to be known. Therefore, Our lives are one continuous movement in the direction of our deepest longings. The problem is that we tend to stop too soon, too near to the surface. When we taste something that tastes good to our souls, we assume that it, that thing, is what our souls were made to be filled with. And so we go charging off in the direction of that person or that thing or that experience, trying to extract something from them or it that they were never intended or able to fully give us. Um, And this is C.S. Lewis. He says it well. He said that these things and these people, these experiences, are only just the scent of a flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we have not yet fully heard, and the news from a country we have never yet visited. In other words, the deepest, most wonderful things of this life were never intended to fully satisfy us, but to point us toward God, you are an eternal being made for eternal things. Everything else here, all of these experiences, people, things, those are all those are all temporary. And if your source of hope and your source of pride and your security is in those things, they will ultimately fail you because you can't take those things with you. You were made for eternity. Now again, let's uh let's kind of wrap wrap this up a little bit. How how do we put this all into practice? Um how does this change your your Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, Wednesday lunch, all that kind of stuff. How do we actually put this into practice? James, again, is very practical. It's clear he's telling us to rejoice in our status as sons and daughters. He's offering us eternal perspective. But again, what do you do with this? How do you live this out? How do you practice this? Um, I'm going to offer a couple things. Two of them come from two dear friends of mine, one named Kristen, one named Lindsay. I'll tell you about them both. Um, first one comes from my friend Kristen. Um, talking to her about this sermon. And it, both of them, I think, live out their faith in very practical ways. And so that's why I chatted with them and why I want to share their insight with you. Um, Kristen offered up the idea of it starts with re-examining your, your life. Um, Kristen is also on staff at Christ Chapel and she's sitting back there. So great. Um, but she said it starts with re-examining your life. And and here's, here's uh, some questions. We'll work through these one at a time. Um, here's some questions for you to do that. What's preoccupying your headspace? What's preoccupying your time, taking up your energy? What are you investing your time and your resources in? Are you more concerned about things like, uh, use the examples I've already talked about, acquiring wealth and status or whatever those things might be that will eventually fade away? Or are you inv- investing in eternal things? Um, Are you putting in an effort to grow in your knowledge of God, of who he is, the work that he's done, uh, what his heart looks like? Uh, Are you actively trying to grow as a disciple and a follower of Jesus? And again, hear me say, I'm not condemning putting effort into creating a good resume and having a good work ethic and all those things. Um, But even with something like a well-paying job and climbing the corporate ladder, if your goal is for worldly status in your own glory, or is your goal for using those things and being a part of those things to be a part of God's redemptive purposes, for his plans, for his, his glory, um, with a humble recognition that anything that you had in the first place is be because of him. So here's the challenge. Today, tonight, tomorrow morning, soon, I would challenge you to go and examine your schedule. If you're a Google Calendar person, go look at your, your Google Calendar. Are you protecting time with What's your time tell you? That's a question that I want you to ask yourself. But then are you protecting time to be with the Lord and actually get to spend time sitting with him and in his word or even just spend a moment in prayer? We all talk about how we want to grow and yet we don't even take a moment to even be in conversation with the God of the universe. And are you doing it regularly? Are you doing it consistently? Um, And then who and what are you spending and surrounding your time with? Uh, Are you surrounding yourself with people who are also trying to follow follow Jesus. Um, Kristen, Kristen put this in a, in a text, which was great, and I'm going to read this part to you. She said, obviously you want to be a good, a good steward of your classes, your job, um, all that kind of stuff. In fact, I would argue that you're called to be a good steward of those things, um, and they're a part of God's plan for you. But if you let all of those things take precedence over the eternal things, then you're not actually being a good steward of them in the first place. Let, let that sink in for a moment. Um, And just remember, the things and the people that you surround yourself will form you. The habits that you have will form you. They form your character and everything. So just examine what those say about you. The second thing, this one is my own little nugget, that I think you have to do in light of all this, is you've got to remember the gospel. Um, For the believer, this is your daily nourishment. It never grows old. It will never grow old. Um, But remember the gospel. In Ephesians 2 Outlaid it for us perfectly. The gospel is that you are more broken and more flawed and more sinful in and of yourself than you could ever dare imagine. And yet, at the very same time, because of Jesus, out of the great love with which he loved you, you're more loved and accepted than you could ever dare believe. And now, if you believe that, if you're a believer, you have his Holy Spirit who is fueling your walk of obedience towards his image, who lives on inside of you and fuels this life of obedience becoming more and more like Jesus. So believers, people that are confessing Christians, that is your daily nourishment. And you need to remind yourself of that every single day, moment by moment, that it is by grace that you are, you're doing this whole thing. And if you're not quite there yet, and you're like, I don't even, even know if I want to be about, uh, I, I don't know if I want a relationship with Jesus. Like I'm doing pretty fine on my own. I don't want, my challenge for you, I love that. I, I really do. And I love that you're here. My challenge for you is don't leave here today without at least just thinking just for a second and considering that the God of the universe has something far better for you. Far better for you than what, what you already have or you think you might have right now. Um, that life with him isn't just good, but I would argue it is beautiful and it is desirable and it really is life to the full. And I promise you, everything that your soul is w- searching for, that restlessness that you feel, that you're trying to grasp at with other things, everything that your soul is searching for, I promise you is satisfied in Jesus, in Christ, in the person and the work of, of Jesus. Um, and I don't want you to leave this room without at least considering that for a moment. Um, all right, let me tell you about my friend Lindsay, and this will be our last kind of application point. Um, Lindsay, I'm pretty sure I had one of her sorority t-shirts in college. Uh, she was a theta. Um, She's now on staff with Young Life in North Carolina. She's a baller. But uh, I was talking with her on the phone uh, about this passage and my sermon, and she offered a really good thought to me um, that I'm sharing with you guys. She offered up the idea that this idea of boasting, um, that this might be less of an active boasting and more of a redirecting of glory. And here's, here's what she meant. Again, when we think of boasting, we think of bragging. It's a turnoff. It's like weird. It's like stop um, unless the frogs win, then that's like the appropriate form of boasting. Um, but again, boasting as James is using it is more of the idea of rejoicing in. Um, But what she's saying, it's a redirecting of glory, redirecting of our attention is um, how I want you to take it away. A redirecting our attention from our circumstances and material things and achievements and all of the good things in this world even, redirecting our attention from those to what is true of us and what is true of God. Again, our low position and our high position. Our low position meaning we were sinners and yet despite that God loved us and saved us and now we have a relationship with him and we're called son and daughters redirecting our attention to that fundamental truth um kind of like the idea of fixing your eyes on things unseen rather than things that are seen really having a eternal perspective um remembering who we are what we will become uh redirecting our attention to the reality even i would say that it's not about you that it's not about us in the first place it's all about God what he's done about his glory, his kingdom, his kingdom come, his will be done. And in in light of all this, here's here's what I want to leave you with. Um just think about it. Think about switching your your perspective on all this. Think about how much that might might change your life. Think about just for a moment, I want you to imagine just simply consider what your life would look like uh if you weren't preoccupied with chasing after the vapor with Um, chasing after the things that your soul is just desperately searching for, the fleeting things that won't ever last and that ultimately fade away. And again, even if those are good things, like a flower, it's beautiful. I get it. But ultimately, its beauty perishes. But think about for a moment what your life would look like if your hope isn't set on those. What would it look like if it wasn't? Um, Imagine just honestly how freeing that, that could feel and that might feel. You are called a son and a daughter, if you're in Christ, of the one true king and God of the universe. That is your status. That is your identity. And I think that is far better than anything else. And I would argue you should build your life around that. Boast in that. Uh, I think it is far better than, than anything else. That is just temporary and fleeting and like vapor in the wind. Uh, let me pray. Father, we love you uh, and we thank you for your word and the truth that's in it. Uh, and Father, we just, we just thank you for, uh, for the fact that you have made us and created us as eternal beings to, to be in relationship with you and live with you forever, um, and that you've put eternity in our hearts, uh, Lord, that we even long for it. Um, and Father, I just pray that you would help us, uh, give us eyes to see and hearts to, uh, to see and know, um. Things eternal, Lord, and to see what we were designed and created for, Lord, and that we would uh we would set our hope and joy on those things rather than um the fleeting things, Lord, I pray that even by your holy Spirit you would help us um help us just redirect our attention and redirect our hearts to um toward you and to your truth and what you say of us and what you've done for us, um Father, and that um, and that we would we would find joy in that father, help us run from things that we might need to be running from, Lord, and help us just um, have the humility to see even the good things in our life as, as we ought. Um, Father, we love you, and we need you, and we trust you. And it's in your name that we pray, amen.